One of the first things I remember memorizing as a young child, other than Jesus loves me and a few simple Bible verses, was the Pledge of Allegiance. There was a ritual. Stand by your desk with your right hand over your heart, face the American flag, and repeat the words together. I can remember the rooms and the schools and sometimes the teachers, though not necessarily any emotions related to the recitation. I was prouder, I think, of the times when I didn't stumble over the words than actually understanding what they meant. And I don't remember anyone taking the time to explain what I was saying. Perhaps you experienced this too, but I'll bet that some of you learned the pledge in a different way. How many of you learned and recited the pledge before 1954? Raise your hand. What was different from what we say today? Under God. One nation under God. I've since found out that those words, under God, in the Pledge of Allegiance, and the phrase, in God we trust, on certain currency, hasn't been around as long as I thought. The references were inserted in the 1950s, during the Eisenhower administration. History professor Kevin Cruz from Princeton University notes in his book, One Nation Under God, that according to the conventional narrative, the Soviet Union discovered the bomb and the United States rediscovered God. As we approach the 240th anniversary of the birth of the United States of America, I wonder if we really are or can ever be a nation under God. Are the phrases significant or simply outdated as various court cases to remove them would suggest? Do enough of us stand before God acknowledging our shortcomings and giving thanks for God's gracious forgiveness and guidance? Or do most of us simply give a cursory nod to God and assert our own control. Maybe today's reading from 2 Kings encourages us and challenges us as believers and as citizens. The healing story we've heard from Elisha seems to begin in the middle of things. Naaman, the military commander of Aram, which is ancient Syria, was a great, read that, rich man, and a man whom the king respected. He had everything going for him, except that one day he discovered that he had a skin disease. It could have been leprosy or even psoriasis. The text doesn't really specify. But whatever it was, he certainly thought the worst. If it were leprosy, there was no known cure. It was a slow-moving, debilitating, painful, and socially isolating disease. So his wealth, status, connections wouldn't probably have been of any use to him. He needed healing now. 
But the great warrior could not heal himself, and the great king could not heal the great warrior. Naaman was not the type of man to sit idly by, so he must have felt especially vulnerable and desperate if he was willing to take advice from his wife's Israelite maid. The young woman without a name was the lowest of the low in terms of status. She was part of the spoils of war, a servant, a foreigner, yet she held the knowledge of a prophet who was able to cure. And Elisha, also a foreigner and a person of a different faith, held the knowledge of what action to take. Naaman couldn't just call to make a discreet appointment, though. Consulting this prophet would involve leaving his own country and entering the land of Israel, Aram's enemy. The text suggests that Israel wasn't even a particularly worthy opponent, with Naaman having accomplished a successful raid in the recent past. At any rate, not quite sure how to navigate this new land of illness, Naaman tells his king what the Israelite servant girl said. The king, not quite catching the part about the Israelite prophet, but hoping he could do something for his military commander, sends a letter of introduction to the king of Israel instead to pave the way for healing. A bit like a medical referral getting lost en route, Naaman's case is held up by bureaucratic twists and turns. Israel's king panics when he receives the letter. How in the world is he supposed to cure a skin disease? If he doesn't, will Aram attack again? Is this some kind of trick? Interestingly, the king of Aram could have asked for almost anything else, and the king of Israel would have figured out some way to handle it. But curing skin diseases was not an option for him. Elisha, upon hearing of the king's anxiety, tells the king to get over himself and to send Naaman to him. Beyond the borders of his home country and trying to hide his vulnerability with excessive bravado, Naaman arrived in great style at Elisha's home with chariots, horses, money, clothes, and an entourage. What in the world can this guy do for me? He has to have been asking himself. I wonder if he could just turn around and go home. Adding insult to injury, the prophet doesn't even come outside of his house to see the celebrity patient who's waiting outside. He sends his servant out in his place. Things go from bad to worse for Naaman when the servant tells him, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. Naaman hits the wall. This is asking too much of him. Humiliated and angry, he says, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure me. Are not all the Abana and the Pafar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in anger. 
being treated as a non-entity by rude or busy practitioners, and then being subjected to strange and distasteful procedures is very much the stuff of life on the other side of health and wholeness. Losing his identity, becoming a number, and feeling foolish and desperate at the same time proved overwhelming for Naaman. How could he possibly trust the prophet's strange prescription relayed through a lowly underling? At the urging of his own servants, who seemed to deeply care for him in spite of his attitude, Naaman finally consented to dipping in the Jordan. Probably not expecting much, but knowing that he had run out of options, he entered the water and immersed himself seven times, raising from the water at that, at that last time, perhaps foolishly hoping, he saw that his skin had been healed. Things get strange when Naaman returns to Elisha. It's their first proper meeting. Naaman confesses, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. While one can argue with Naaman's exclusive location of the God of Israel in Israel, Elisha does not. Rather, in his healing, Naaman has met and been healed by the Lord in a way that leads to knowing. While Naaman tries to give Elisha some or all of the fortune he carries from the king of Aram, Elisha accepts nothing. It is the Lord who healed Naaman, not Elisha. Naaman then asks two things. Two mule loads of earth from Israel so that he can worship the Lord when he gets home. Remember that he thinks that there's no God but God in Israel. And that he'd be pardoned when he necessarily, because of his position in Aram, bows down with the king of Aram in the temple of Rimmon, the chief god of Aram. Naaman has earlier stated his sole devotion to the Lord, yet what was he to do in this situation? Elisha answers, go in peace. He doesn't prohibit or regulate or condemn. He bids him go in peace. When he is healed, this foreigner has come to know that the Lord is the only God. Much like the story of faith for many of us, the difficult part for Naaman came in humbling himself in order to submit to this cure and allowing himself to be changed by it. Once he dipped into the faith that was available to him, Naaman emerged as a believer. In crossing this physical, spiritual, and emotional boundary, he crossed over from unbelief to belief, from pride to humility, and from hopelessness to faith. He emerged a new man, reborn and renewed. Naaman's healing, his experience of grace, led to his knowing God and to his confession of faith, not the other way around. It was the kind of knowing that's born of faith and an encounter with the God of love. This is the faith 
that Naaman encountered in Israel in the muddy waters of the Jordan. He emerged not only with clean skin, but also with clear eyes and a full heart. Naaman's experience reminds us that even though salvation by faith through grace is given by God freely and easily, it still comes with a cost. It's easy to have faith, but it's far more difficult to live faithfully. We want control over God, to demonstrate our goodness, and to show how God owes us. When we recognize that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's blessing, then all of a sudden, we're out of control. God has the power. And that's what we acknowledge when we say we're under God. So on this day before Independence Day, consider this paraphrase of the opening verses of 2 Kings 5. Now the United States of America was commander of the free world. She was a great country in her own sight and in the sight of others highly regarded, because through her the Lord had given victory. She was a valiant warrior, but she had leprosy. This image captures the tension with which I've struggled in considering God's challenging word to us in the story of Naaman. It's evident in our ongoing political tensions. It represents the sickness of a nation that does little but pray in the face of massacres in Sandy Hook, Charleston, Colorado, Orlando, and so many places. It captures in the fear and hatred directed at refugees who are trying to save their families' lives. Our country is great, and our country is sick. We need healing from the disfiguring disease of better than. My political viewpoint is right. My faith is true. Our country is best. The illness that plagues us crosses partisan lines. It includes peoples of faith. It includes the nuns. This attitude is blemishing our best ideals, our best faith, our best selves. It infects us whether we arrogantly place our affinity group above all others or apathetically fall to speak and act against those who do. Like Naaman, we assume that God will work in ways we expect. We want healing, wholeness, forgiveness, peace, and all the answers to our prayers to come on our schedules at our demand. We expect a dramatic revelation of God's power, an overwhelming flood of peace to wash over us so that we will know for sure that our prayers have been answered. Sometimes this happens. But so many times we've wondered if God is listening at all. Remember that Naaman's healing does not occur as he expects but as God chooses. The good news is that God does hear our prayers. 
God knows our needs as individuals and as a country. And God continues to be present, often through the most unexpected sources, to bring about healing, wholeness, and grace, whether we acknowledge it or not. Finally, like Naaman, we need to listen to the overlooked and the ignored in our midst to bring about God's kingdom. Remember that the great and powerful in the story needed to listen to the seemingly weak and often ignored characters in order for God's plans to be carried out. That's an interesting point to consider, not just on a personal level, but also on a national level. We are a nation of immigrants, founded on a principle, either spoken or unspoken, that all God's people are holy. Welcoming the stranger is central and sacred to the story of our nation and our faith. We are healed by the grace of God, and we are called to share that healing and to welcome as we go forward. As we celebrate our independence tomorrow, may we demand of ourselves and of our leaders an opportunity to question, to learn, and to continue to grow as a nation intentionally under God. Naaman discovered that going back would not be a return to normal or to the way things used to be. Having sojourned in the land of illness, there was now a new horizon, one that didn't exist before, one that was formed at the point where vulnerability and trust came together to create a new life of faith in God. May we know that new life as we come to the table today, to be fed, to be nourished, to be healed by that same God made known to us in Jesus Christ. Come to the table and experience God's grace and God's peace. And may our country and this world be a better place because God has met us there. Amen.